Welcome to Future Perspectives, the Locarno Film Festival podcast presented by UBS. I'm your host, Gabby Sanderson, and I'm here to talk with international film stars, upcoming talent, and industry game changers. Over the Future Perspectives series, you will discover secret stories and inspiring perspectives on the future of cinema culture and society. So let's begin. This is Future Perspectives. Stefano Knuckle, welcome to the Future Perspectives podcast. You are a director, writer, producer, head of the Locarno Film Festival Academy and project manager of Basecamp. Busy man. <laughs> busy, busy man. And born here in Locarno. Yeah, actually, uh, a few days after the end of the edition of 1966, so this is a giveaway from, from the beginning, it was quite a long ago. And it's funny because my, I think a lot of people around here feel like the festival is part of their life. Mm -hmm. And so as a child, I came here in the Piazza Grande first time. Uh, I, I was like seven and my, my, my uncle brought me in the Piazza Grande. It was a Fellini movie. I didn't understand a thing, but I was so amazed. Was and the screen as big then as it is now? Well, I, I was a child, so it was even bigger oh, in right, my head. Yeah. <laughs> but no, actually, the screen itself was uh, smaller than it is today. But it was uh, an amazing experience. And I think here, we a lot of people learn to, to confront with cinema that is, can be challenging and in a very natural way. So, yeah, mm. I grew in many positions. Jokingly, I said that like the Kama Sutra of the festival, I tried almost every position. <laughs> there must be there must be like a, a couple of pages sticky that I can still open, but uh, yeah. Right. You know this festival well. Let's actually talk about your work outside of the Locarno Film Festival first. You're a self-taught director. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, but yeah, I am self-taught because, it's, well, it's, it's quite a long story, but uh, I grew up really, I'm Swiss, so mm -hmm. to not go to school if you're Swiss is really against the law. So I had like an unlawful childhood and, uh, and, and teenage years. Oh, you're and, a maverick. Uh, yeah, actually, my, my, my father was a maverick, a crazy man. He was a con man, a real, a real con man. I mean, we, we grew up going through Europe and making one con after the other and just like going <laughs> 100 kilometers away so that we can reinvent life, you know. This is why you did a documentary, which I'll ask you about later, but yeah, on yeah. your family, yeah. So basically, but self-taught, my definition of self-taught is someone who learns from everyone as opposed to someone who studies and learn from a very specific um, well of knowledge, you know, mm. like, so I think this is, um, and to me, it's a very important thing because I, I always need to learn more. So mm. I think also all of these activities that I'm doing is really because I want to learn more. I always feel like in a way uh, I'm not adapted, which is true because when you're self-taught, you know, certain things and you don't know others, which are really like, uh, it's under the sun, you mm -hmm. know, you can be very bright and suddenly really stumble in a black hole. And so it pushes you to learn more and more and more. Mm. And uh, also the idea of diversity. Uh, you know, the word diversity is very used today, but if you go to the end of it, you, you, you'll never see the end of it. Diversity is, is incredible. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's an incredible topic. You, you, you cannot just put names. You know, we have a lot of categories we, we name today and we call that diversity. Yeah. But it's broader than that. And I really feel that being, being self-taught is like not belonging to anything specific. So always scrambling to get 
others in to talk to everyone and find out mm. who you are. Well, you definitely made some very diverse projects. I think curiosity, which you mentioned as well, is so important in creativity. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's, it's a game. It's also a game. Uh, I, I think there is a dark side of it, which is uh, never feeling adapted. You know, the, the, this feeling of... Uh, uh, they call that the, the syndrome of uh, being, a, 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 yeah, someone who's not up to it, but people think the, you are. That's, mm -hmm. that's the dark side of driving you. The other one is the, the playful part. I had a beautiful childhood, a wonderful childhood. I was, I was doing whatever I want from, from morning till, till nine. And, and I wanted to play. So I still want to play. And I really, I'm happy that I still keep this really my brainless mm -hmm. <laughs> approach to many things. Just having fun, discovering, opening the door. I love that. Your first major project was No Court. Yeah, El Knockout. El Knockout. I was about to ask yeah. the interesting Cuban yeah. boxing. Where did that come from? Well, actually, that came from because, I, at, well, it, it's a long story, but at 30, I didn't make one image. I was 30. I haven't made an image in all my life. I really wanted, I, I love cinema very much. I love it so much, I was scared. So at 30, to make it short, I said I was the head of the radio station in Switzerland. I was the youngest head of a radio station or whatever. Uh, I was just uh, married and everything. I said, no, no, stop all that. Stop. I, I, I resigned from the job. I divorced. Uh, I said, I, I quit everything. I want to make cinema and go study cinema in India so that was like a, 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 a you studied cinema in India no in the end I didn't because oh. I really wanted to stay like okay leave me alone I want to change my life I don't want to be encapsulated so well I ended up making a first movie but absolutely with no credibility at all I mean, really, I, I still amazed on how I managed to get the money. Probably my, my father kind of helped me in that, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it was the money with the biggest budget I ever had in all of my life, you know. I was so, it was so, so challenging. But in the end, I thought, okay, what are, what are I'm going to talk about? And I was scared, since I was really begin, a beginner, to maybe talk about something I love so much that I would be blinded by the thing that I know. So I thought, okay, I want a country which is full of stereotypes and a topic I really don't care about, you know? <laughs> and uh, so we had some drunk sessions coming up with ideas. Then someone came up and says, oh, boxing in Cuba. And one said, oh, yeah, that's great. That's so cliche, you know? Yeah. But the truth is behind cliche, there's always something. So uh, I took a plane, I went to Cuba, investigated the whole thing. And what I found behind that was really amazing, which is then become like a, a topic, like an obsession in my life. Uh, boxing with the revolution in Cuba, they really meant values. They really incarnated values. Mm. But as all values, as all ideals, they, you, 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 the problem is you survive your ideas. Your ideas, your ideals die before you die. And then what happens in life, you know? So I saw these guys believing in the revolution and now having a, a country which is crumbling, which is full of problems and still in the name of the revolution, joven rebelde. And they are like 80 years old, like they can't stand up, but they're still young rebels. And boxing, after 33, you have to leave. Yeah. And, but you stay there around, you know, around the ring and just wait for something to happen. So how, how do you reinvent your life when what all that drove you suddenly disappears yeah. uh, that amazed me so that that's what it spoke to me not not cuba not boxing 
Mm. I would say in a way I wouldn't care ab about uh, both of them, but it's re this topic that mm. really stood out Just for the me. The message behind it, yeah, and that was screened in competition at the Locarno Film Festival. Yeah. What was that experience like? Because it was your first first thing, yeah. and you're from Locarno, and you've mm. grown up coming to the festival. Yeah, it's all weird, but I'm kind kind of used to weird, so uh, <laughs> doesn't feel like that awkward. But it was funny because some people were criticizing, asking questions like, are you for or against Cuba? And I, said, I always said, you can only have a very clear idea on Cuba if you don't go there, you know? But if you go there, it gets complex. So, but anyway, it was funny because I got a little bit pissed by some, uh, some questions, but then I thought immediately like, but I had such a great, incredible human experience. Why would I care about? I mean, it's not like, I, 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 for me, the comments are very important. You know, you have to improve. But why would I just suffer from that? And I, I, have the, I have this great opportunity to travel and experience all that. I, I am a privileged, so I can take any comment. Nice. <laughs> Next came Paint Me a Life, which yeah. I couldn't find very much about mm. online. I was, yeah. And I asked the team. And so could you tell us about Paint Me a Life? Now, that was actually uh, one movie I made for a uh, humanitarian cause, which is uh, a guy who went to East Timor right after the Indonesian left the country and they made a mass killing in this country. The country really was burned to, 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 to the ashes. And this guy was trying to make a, a school of fine arts in the middle of a burned city. I, I thought it was absolutely crazy. And when you ask yourself, you know, I was working in television at that time, and the question was, I always, um, my content was culture, and the question that always come up is, yeah, but what is the, the relevance of culture? You know, why culture? Oh, but then these people, you know, the, the, the answer is really straight, it's really clear, like, we don't have anything. We don't have access to anything. They, 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 they can't see movies, they can't paint, they don't have the instrument be because they don't have the instrument. So this guy takes uh, a burned down hospital and creating there a school of fine arts. He expects to have like 15 to 20 young students to, to, to train and after one month he has, he has 500 young people in, wow. in Dili who wants to come and just participate in creation. I said, Stefano, please help me because I need to find the funds. So we made a documentary uh, with Ramos Horta, who is um, um, a Nobel Prize winner for, for peace, which was the prime minister of East Timor. And we said, okay, we, we want to raise the money to make it you know, viable and to, to, to stay, which actually we managed to do. But also what I've learned is that you should never mix two purposes. So one is to make cinema, one is to make a humanitarian cause. So, as a matter of fact, I'm not happy with the film in itself, you know? I'm happy with what we achieved with the movie. Right, so and I thought, what did okay. you achieve? Yeah, I think it's, it, 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 it taught me a very important lesson, you know, like, mm -hmm. okay, things are, have different dynamics, don't try to mix them, but it was a great uh, human experience, and, and this place still works today. Uh, Arte Moris in, uh, in Dili, and now it's totally managed by them, you know? Because we're also this big, big topic today of you know, respecting of the culture, uh, cultural appropriation. We really made it in a way that they could really be able to manage and create their own, uh, their own management and their own uh, art. Yeah. And now it's totally autonomous and it's just a brilliant thing. Oh, that's wonderful. Then you directed a two-hour documentary for mm. the 60th anniversary yeah. of the Locarno Film Festival, covering its rich history. So tell us a bit about that. I'd imagine that must have been a lot of work, 60 <laughs> years to try and encapsulate in two hours. 
Well, one passion I have is to find things in archives. And uh, there were lots of archival footage of, about the Festival Locano, but quite messy in the way they were archived because the supports change and be, uh, the, the, the format of, of, of you know, some film, beta, some VHS, whatever, all, all kind. and also people maybe misspelled the names and it was mm -hmm. on paper and so it was complicated. So I really wanted like to say, okay, let's really take all the footage, all the memory uh, that we have of Locano and then start thinking about it. But for me, the, the real value of that work is really, uh, we have created at that moment, the, really the archive of the Festival of Locano, like the audiovisual memory of the Festival of Locano. So then we made, with my colleague Cristina Trezzini in television, we made the documentary, which went two hours long. But again, I really think that now we can go and pick that guest in the 40s and the 50s and you know that that Spike Lee saying I'm just a young student here and the people have been kind to me they've given me place to to, to sleep and uh, and the bed and now they're they're telling me that uh, uh, I can go on a piazza and show a movie but it's just a student it's like he comes here with a student movie so oh, you've got footage of that yes we got footage of that so yeah, that was so amazing to find some. Wow. Uh, uh, one, one thing that's really touching, Penelope Cruz with the first movie here. Yeah. She's very, very young, you know, like I'm here for the first time with the movie and, uh, and she's playing like a little girl and, she, and uh, she's so fresh. She's so beautiful. You really see exactly what Penelope Cruz is. But at the moment, she was interviewed by luck because she really wasn't like a big shot at that moment. So also, I think it's very important for television that is here at the Festival Locano that they do film a lot mm -hmm. because there are a lot of people who come here in the very early stage of their life and then they become famous. Yeah. Uh, but it's nice to have pictures of them. Like they, Those are two amazing stories. Can I ask you for another one? <laughs> oh, actually, I found, uh, that is crazy, because I found a shot uh, of Quentin Tarantino walking in Locano because people were saying was he because people said I saw Quentin Tarantino in Locano and that became more like the Loch Ness story you know like <laughs> I saw Tarantino emerging from the Cursal and he just passed me by and he was tall and everything and, and everyone said yeah yeah it, I, I still thought it was like a joke that turned into some kind of real thing. Right. And in the end, I managed to find someone, actually a, a private person who were filming. No, he didn't know that was Quentin Tarantino. And it was Quentin Tarantino. And then we found out he just came once uh, for a couple of days just to watch movies. He didn't say anything to anyone, just went from you know, one, one, one screening to the other and just... Just walking wow, by. Wow, <laughs> this place really is magical. Can I ask you about Hugo Pratt? Because mm -hmm. you have done yeah. two uh, documentaries on him and he's an Italian comic book creator. So I guess, was this something as a child? You were into mm -hmm. comics? Yeah, but not, not so much. Actually, I was really into his work. Mm. Uh, because when I read it, that's when I discovered Fellini. I didn't understand, understand anything about who what is a director? Who is Fellini? That, no idea. The same way when, um, as a child, I was reading some comics and then suddenly Corto Maltese appears and I said, but this is completely different. This gives me like a strange feeling just, just reading it. Then afterwards, you, you, you learn about the life of these people. And um, I always said, oh, I like to make like three documentaries about three people I love. One is Fellini, one is Buñuel, and one is uh, Hugo Pratt. It mm -hmm. turned out that 
life led me to have a very strong connection because Hugo Pratt died in Switzerland. All the archive of uh, Hugo Pratt are in, are in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And I just made a, a short piece, a short documentary about that thing. And this, yeah. the first one is Hugo on Afrique and he was yeah. holding an Ethiopian cross. Yeah. Was that when he died? Yes, exactly. That, that's the, the starting point of my story. But when yeah. he dies, he has an Ethiopian cross in his hand, you know, and uh, I said people said that he was he was the inventor of the graphic novel. The term graphic novel itself was created by him, you know. So and he really created the first graphic novel. So it's culturally relevant in that sense. Mm. But I think his life is so inspiring. If I go back to the idea of being self-taught, he also was self-taught, and he really saw life as uh, as an adventure, but a complex adventure, and. When I follow his tracks, I always discover weird things. I end up in places I would never end up with. I, I'm maybe I don't look like, but I'm, I'm very a quiet and shy guy. You know, uh, I, I would really stay home just reading books. And but then I ended up, for example, I was in the north of uh, Djibouti, uh, which is a small, very small country uh, in, in near Ethiopia and uh, Somalia. And um, I went there because I have to shoot something. And uh, it was impossible. There was like a civil war. And then the president of uh, Djibouti knows I'm in town because, of course, like a group of white people being in town <laughs> sound a little strange. Right. And he invites me up in, 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 uh, in the palace. And I said, oh, my God, because he has a very bad reputation. I said, OK, let's go. And uh, he says, you know what? When I was young, a young soldier in the desert, Hugo Pratt were scouting. And I went with him in the desert for one month. So he said, I've heard you want to go to Tajura. It's impossible to go by car. You can take my helicopter and go there with my helicopter. So I said, oh, all right. OK, that was, that was already weird enough. Yeah. <laughs> but then uh, the helicopter leaves us in Tajura. And suddenly I'm there in Tajura, which is out of the world, full of people trafficking in drugs. Uh, I really felt like I was in a zombie movie, like everyone with red eyes, really strange. And uh, I, I was waiting for a French spy, who was a friend of Hugo Pratt, to come in Tajura, right on the, uh, on the border of the sea. But I felt really in danger. So I said to my cameraman, OK, now we're going to say to, I, we speak French, people who understand, please film the sea. And I would say, oh, what a beautiful boat and everything. That was the worst idea in my life because people were aggressive uh, towards us because the year pr previous to that, uh, a very important um, uh, person of, 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 of the French government was killed in that city. So they thought we were French journalists investigating on drug oh. trafficking and the drug was coming with that boat. Oh. So I really ended up in a mess and people with guns surrounding us and I really felt, okay, first I thought, how, how did I end up here, you know? Why would I end up here? That's just, yeah. why, why? What am I doing here? And the second one, I really felt like, okay, this is, it's done. You know, it's, it's done. I hope it just goes fast, you know. But, but then the guy arrived, the, the, the French spy arrived, and uh, the things cooled down a bit. Because actually the guy, as a spy or French guy, there was the Sultan of Tajura. And the Sultan of Tajura, when he was, he took like the place of being the Sultan, this guy wrote a piece on Le Monde. So the Sultan of Tajura was like forever grateful to him. So he said, no, these are the friends of my friend. So uh, leave them alone. And he took us to his palace, which was a crumbled building, but where he offered us the most beautiful thing in life, which was a cold Fanta. <laughs> <laughs> that was a moment I was like, oh, oh life is, is back to being beautiful. <laughs>
<laughs> so you made this documentary in 2009, but then you revisited Hugo Pratt, was it like 10 years later? Um, for Hugo in Argentina. So you wanted to tell more of the story of, of Hugo Pratt. Yeah, the plan was to make a tri- is to make a trilogy and make every episode 10 years apart from the previous one. Right. Uh, that's like feeling like you are some kind of, um, how do you say that, the, the guys that never die. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's not the Netflix. A Highlander. That's mm. not the Netflix culture, is it? <laughs> so tell me about the, the Hugo mm. in Argentina, mm. because that was more recent. This is um, landing in Bre- Buenos Aires in 1950. Mm. Exactly. That's These are the 50s in, in Argentina, a very incredible wildlife. It's just crazy and hectic, and uh, mm. a lot of things happen uh, down there. That's also where the graphic novel idea takes shape. It takes shape in big parties, in crazy ideas, political upheavals, and uh, uh, then it turns bad because we all know in the 70s what happened in Argentina, you know, with the dictatorship and people disappearing. And uh, so uh, I, I think it's a very important moment where he comes as a very energetic guy, just enjoying life, and 10 years later, really. Switched to a more complex approach to life, and knowing also what he could achieve through through uh, his art, yeah. and uh, yeah, uh, to me it's just really uh, th- these are three moments in his life I want to tell. Yeah, he was very very young in Ethiopia, then uh, at that moment in Argentina. Then we will speak on the on the last one on the. Oh, you're not giving op- it away, are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, but it will be in the Pacific, in Venice, and in Switzerland and Paris. So, yeah. Mm, some travels to do nice nice going back to your childhood Mm -hmm. and the little bits that you shared about your family and especially your dad here comes the inspiration for Quand j'étais clo-clo oh that's charming yeah so this is a documentary (laughs) where you share your memories Mm. of your childhood spent Mm -hmm. with your family on the roads in Switzerland and Europe yeah, tell us a bit more about some of those adventures. Well, I think everyone who makes movies sooner or later has to confront with its own family. I think we all survive our own families until the last day, you know. Mm. We are survivors of that. And, um, I, but there was, they always, people always told me, oh, you should make a documentary about such a crazy family, such a crazy life. I said, yeah. But, you know, s- stories, they're, they're full of interesting stories. Now, the problem is, why would you tell it? You know, when is the moment to tell it? To me, the moment is to make spoilers. If you want to <laughs> see the movie, is that my father was really crazy, as I told you, as a con man and doing a lot of disappearing and then going to prison and then disappearing to Paraguay. Well, at a certain point, we were sure he he, he had died. So I, I lived for his own family. Yeah, I mean, we were sure he he had died, but we didn't have any proof. But uh, Ten years passed by, and um, was okay. Yeah, yeah, he's gone. He's dead. And also, I was maybe in my head. I thought, uh, I thought really that really that really is my father. You know, like disappearing in Paraguay. And okay, that's the way to go for him. Right. Well, actually, no, because ten years later, my uncle, which is the um, the twin brother of my father, mm-hmm. calls me and said, you know, Stefano, what your dad is alive and is in the hospital here in Switzerland. He wants to see you. I said, oh yeah, all right. Then I thought, oh, oh my God, he will never be the man, you know, like for me, I, I really loved my father. He was a crazy man. He's so, so charming. I thought, ah, he will not be the same man. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, I, I became father myself. So I thought, okay, will I go to see him? It took me like two months 
to mm. finally go to him. So it, that started a process of seeing all my life back and um, and also to, to learn how to forgive. I, I love my father, but we are five children. The other four are not so happy with the life we, we, we had. Right. You know, and some of them become drug addicted. They they totally went out of society. They kind of suffered for, 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 the, for, for the way we, we, we mm. lived. But But I think... Uh, what I've learned is that you should not request too much from other people. Everyone is trying their best, you know. And but this is simple, simply put, to say that in that way. But when you really feel it and you can really kind of build it, I made this documentary because I really felt well at a certain point. I feel like I overcome mm. something. And for me, the most joyous thing, I, 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 this is probably a documentary I'm, I'm closest with, but not only because it's, a, it's the family, my family story, but really because a lot of people who saw the documentary really had this kind of sense of relief, you know. And, and years ago, I, I made a documentary and I prepared it with, with talking with uh, uh, Alejandro Khodorovsky. I don't know if you know him, but he's kind of, he's a big director, he's a, a little bit shamanic and a crazy guy. And one, in one session, he told me, you know, Stefano, I always made art to kind of provoke people. Mm -hmm. But at this stage of my life, I, I, I've learned that I don't want to hurt people anymore. I just want them to feel stronger and better in life, which, mm. which doesn't mean to say that life is a pink thing. It's not a pink thing. Mm. But when you come out of the movie, you should feel stronger, you know, better. Yeah. 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 And, and so I really felt I could convey that. And actually, that's what happened. I really, And so I was super happy. You know, sometimes in life, you want to say like the right thing at the right moment. That mm. rarely happens. Uh, well, that movie for me was like the right thing at the right moment. And that's such a relief to, to, to have like had this moment of... Uh, being conscious it sounds like it was quite a therapeutic process for you do you feel like you've got quite a lot of your dad in you oh absolutely actually one of the scenes spoilers in the end <laughs> is i say to my father we are the same at a certain point uh, i alternate the shots on the on this chair like yeah sorry he has a very shitty chair in a uh, he's an apartment that is really worn out and uh, uh, but in the end, I, I really feel like, and actually, my father was a magician. He did ma magic tricks in in, in the childhood. It doesn't and I, surprise I, me; he's good at disappearing, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I, I I asked him. You know, he was very old then. And I said, "But do you still remember some tricks?" And he makes a trick like with cigarettes in the hand that disappears. And I said, "Please help me. How can I do that?" And then I, we do it together, and we make the, the the cigarette disappear together. And I really feel like. Oh, so, Sorry, it's just... No, uh, no, 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 please. <laughs> so touching yeah. because, yeah, experiences in life are, are so strong. And I think cinema, for me, well, cinema and art, and yeah. also this initiative in Locarno, is really about sharing experiences in yeah. life. Yeah, Which has, it, Life is amazing, you know? Yeah. Life is amazing. It's not easy. It's not a pink thing. It's very brutal. It's unfair. It's whatever you want, whatever you call it, you know? Mm. I was bold when I was 30. Uh, <laughs> It's unfair, but uh, <laughs> you but, wear it well. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, because I have headphones. And uh, <laughs> no, but really, I, I think it's a great thing. And I just, you know, um, like for me, the best thing. In, if you ask me, what is your greatest achievement in life? Mm. Uh, when my daughter was born, I thought, oh, yes, I could be a daddy. You know, like, and uh, uh, the relation I have with her, it's like the best ever in life. So this is great. Uh, so that's a great feeling. And then if you have the tools, like. 
making cinema, traveling, yeah, that's purpose to, to do things. If we could share that, it's it's just great, yeah. Mm, absolutely, it's all yeah. about human connection, isn't yeah. it? Before we get yeah. on to Locarno and the Academy and everything you do, this is a recent project, you wrote Dawn Chorus. Yeah, I produced a friend, actually a friend with a very good screenwriter, and uh, he had lots of uh, scripts that are very good. And actually, once I read one, I said, oh, this one is for Sundance Laboratory. And they laughed, like saying, like, like you need a car, yeah, get the Rolls Royce, you know. I said, no, no, but really, this one is really like a perfect fit. He said, no, but it's just too far. He sent it, and it was really on the final stage of the lab. But the thing is, it was frustrated because he had lots of script and could not manage to actually make a movie as a director. So I said, oh, you know, I'm very amused to make this guerrilla cinema. So if you follow my rules, in one year from that moment, we will have the movie shot. We don't have yet the idea of what to shoot. But we start now, we decide what is the idea, how we build it, we make it like punk style, so everything is proportioned to the idea. And in one year time, it's going to be shot. And actually, that's what happened. The year after, it was shot. Then it was a slowdown by, by the whole process of, of the COVID. But the, the movie took shape. And, and again, it's about life, you know, sharing with my friend, having with my friend this opportunity to give him like this idea. Finally, he makes the movie as a director. Mm. And that was just beautiful. And we shot it all in a beautiful Highland year mm. uh, near Locarno, which is, a, they gave it for us like for a month. Uh, they close it up and leave it to us for, for, for it to shoot. And it was like very surreal experience. Wow. That's, I mean, that sounds glorious. It's four backpackers that are mm. at the end of their sabbatical year and they're backpacking around the world and they make this unexpected stop in the location. Snow-capped alpine peaks on a tropical island in the middle of a Swiss lake. That's, that's exactly what happened. People were swimming for, for some scene. We were in the beginning of November. They were swimming in the lake and they had this palm waving the sun and then you saw the, the, the snow there on the, on the peaks, which are very close. Yeah, weird place. Amazing. <laughs> so with all that that we've just talked about, one could say that would keep you plenty busy. But here you are in Locarno. <laughs> You've been head of the Locarno Film Festival Academy since 2012, yeah. just the past 10 years. So let's start there before we go into base camp. So this is a 10-day intensive programme for young directors. Um, it was created to meet the needs of a generation of filmmakers facing new challenges in terms of the production and distribution of their work. Yeah. So what kind of challenges are we facing? Well, the thing it was very weird when they asked me to do that because I had just had the, the first movie. With Hugo was in competition in, in, in Venice. So I thought it's a movie made with 80,000 euros. So basically nothing in terms mm -hmm. of production and went in competition in Venice. Mm -hmm. And so they thought, oh, maybe... And it won an award, didn't it? Yeah, it won an award from, from, the, from the Critics Award. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was really happy with that, of course. But they asked me, would you like to to do uh, an academy for us. They had an academy which involved a lot of different people. I think it, it was a little bit of a mess. And I said, but why are you asking me? You know, I didn't go to school. I, I, why? Yes, I made that movie. I said, but if you're asking me, I, I would try something very different in the sense that there are lots of beautiful talent labs all over the world in festivals and they are very f strong they have lots of money lots of connection if we try to go that route we just be the, like the last one coming in the party it doesn't make sense to me but I thought there is one thing that no one does in this circuit which is to remind filmmakers maybe that goes again my, my own mindset which is th they make a lot of very beautiful short movies and when they go to the first movie then there's a, a, a huge amount of heavy crushing mm -hmm. 
For many reasons, of course, for the reason that other worship would care about, you know, having the money, the finding the partners, how to, to, to talk to festival. Yeah, of course, there's, there is management. But there's also another topic which I focus on, which is directors get to that point because of who they are and what they bring. And suddenly they start doubting themselves because everyone says, like, you are the most stupid person in the room. You know, like, we know about production. We know about this Everyone's and this and that and that. Yeah. yeah. And so you feel like the message on the, on the that is like, you are the most inappropriate person to be in that position, but still you are there. Put down your eyebrows and just... So my point was, no, no, the opposite. You are there for some reason. Resist and just affirm yourself. And here in 10 days, you live like in a utopian world where the most... Daring cinema can be seen, appreciated, and awarded. So it's just a reminder of to, to be strong. And um, since we have little time, there's one thing I, I hate to do, but I do it this, because also it's the 10th anniversary. It's like these success stories, as, yeah. as they would say. Like in the first year, there was um, uh, Marcelo Martinez. He came from Paraguay. He made sure that we're not totally uh, perfect, but I really love the idea, the project he had. Well, he came here, uh, he got, uh, and when he was here, he got in contact with the Cine Fondation in Cannes. He went to the Cine Fondation in Cannes. Uh, he got the money to make a show that won in Berlinale the, the, the best short. Then he got the award. He made another show that won in Venice the best short. Then he got wow. the money to make the first feature and won the Silver Bear then uh, in Berlinale. So that was a, a, a great uh, achievement starting from there. Yeah. Cyril Schaubin, a Swiss director, who, who now uh, is uh, one of the best Swiss directors, and he just won the, the award in Berlin for best director. And actually, he, he asked me to play a little role in his latest movie, which was, oh, wow. <laughs> it was a very funny experience. And also, uh, Reinaldo Marcus Green was here four years ago. He just won the infamous award, uh, award uh, Academy Award for Will Smith because he is the director of the movie. So we, we really saw, uh, because we have this, this power here in Locarno mm -hmm. to really select the best and to have the, the grasp the idea who is going to 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 come out and to to just help them not to get lost uh on the road which happens anyway it happens happens a lot but then some people make it through mm -hmm. and uh, it's very important for a festival to be in connection with them from the beginning because now we are friends with them you know they go around the festival they are glamorous they are all the circuits <laughs> and we ask them and yeah. so they, they they give us back because yeah. they have this very warm uh, experience with Locarno. So it's an incredible launch pad then yeah, for the it, next it, generation yeah, it became of talent. That, yes. mm. How do people apply for it? Do they have to submit some work? Yeah, there, there's an open call every year. Uh, then other people get in through other collaboration. We collaborate with, uh, with Cannes, with the Cine Fondation. We collaborate with a residency in Africa called Realness, which is absolutely great. And uh, sometimes we have other collaboration that maybe it's just for one year or two years. Mm -hmm. But then there is an open call, and we just want people to send everything they did up until now. I mean, everything. So even if you made like four shorts and, uh, and three of them you are ashamed of, just send it to me, because I really want to see what you're trying to build. It's not, it's, it's not the competition of short movies, you know. Very often, you see short movies which are not very well accomplished, but you, see, you understand why, you know. Right. You can understand because it's not easy to make it work. It's not just because you, you dreamed of it, you know. Yeah. There are many, many elements that come into play. So we really feel the idea, the personality, and what could be, like, where, where are they going? And, um, so you're really nurturing their own personal creative vision. You're not yeah. you're not trying to steer them like I'd imagine many people in the industry would go. No, you need to do it this way or this way. You're like, no, no do it your way. But this is how 
you do it in the best way. Absolutely. Yeah. We're looking for personalities, then we respect the personalities. The funny thing is that when I took over, there were like 50 applications every year for the, f the formula that was previous. And now we have a problem because we have like 600 applications every year. And 600 is a problem because then you, you select maybe 11 because the other comes through other like collaboration. So that's very frustrating and frustrating for them also. So now we put some filters to it so that we, we lower it down to 300. But yeah. still you make a lot of people. And that's a lot of content yeah. you have to watch. Yeah, <laughs> because I don't know if it, it, good news and bad news, there are lots of talented people out there, you know? Mm. Uh, sometimes people say, oh, but I have, I have talent. Say, so, yeah, it's like like the basic token to get to play. Mm. Uh, talent is uh, should, not, should not be overestimated. <laughs> well, speaking of talent and a lot of talent, let's move on to Locarno Film Festival's base camp, mm -hmm. which you are the mind behind. You oversee 200 young creatives aged between 18 and 30, mm -hmm. In 11 days, no rules. That sounds absolutely <laughs> carnage. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like, uh, it's, I, I don't know how to define that, but the, the thing is, I think festival is an encounter, you know? But then what is an encounter? Mm. An encounter is, for me, something unexpected in a festival. So if everything is already like pre-prepared, sometimes we go to festival like we would go to the UN to sign a peace agreement, you know? Like everyone has been informed before, like you will go there, you will receive that, they will say you, that's good for that thing, and that's bad for that other thing. It's like pre-masticato in Italian, which is a beautiful term, like that. it's pre-chewed, you know? Right. And, and when you come here, nothing, it's just you just follow, follow the line. Mm. Uh, what we do here, actually, it's it's, it's kind of crazy, but it has some sense behind. Why would we have people uh, coming from the Department of Ethics of Molecular Research in Basel to a festival of Locarno? Well, yes. The reason is we have in Switzerland uh, a very important research, molecular research, and they are come to the point where they ask themselves questions that are really relevant for society. But they ask this question inside of the laboratory. So the ethical department, their task is to say, no, no, wait, wait, you are messing with society, with human being, with the body, with the, you should investigate, interrogate society. Now, how, wh wh how, where is the way out? Where is the dialogue taking place? Of course, there's a political dialogue. There is a purely ethical approach. But then culture and arts are a very important one. Mm. And so through the young researchers that come from all over the world, because it's really like one of the best places in the world, we make collaboration with artists so that they go into the laboratory and we develop a project which can be photographic, filmic, an installation, a performance, whatever, just to keep interrogating this specific task, but mainly to say, bring the eyes of the people inside the laboratories and get the people out of the laboratory and get them to, to stand in front of an audience and explain what they're doing. Just, it's a basic thing, saying, okay, you're not alone. Uh, right, you know. yeah, because when I was yeah. reading up on Basecamp, it's filmmakers, photographers, musicians, designers, stylists, writers, performers, scientists. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, um, <laughs> I wasn't expecting that, yeah. but now that yeah. makes total sense. Also, one thing is sometimes you ask people to be participant, but as a matter of fact, you, you ask them to be visitors, you know. You don't allow them to put their hands really on the wheel. Mm. 
and uh, we really ask people to put their hands on the wheel. So they're really participating and mm. they're really taking their own share of the work and, and everything. The atmosphere must be electric. <laughs> totally. Yeah. As we kind of wrap things up, what are your hopes for these bright young creatives and their place in the future of art and film? Uh, I saw a beautiful documentary once. They were interviewing Francis Bacon, the great uh, British painter, and he was very drunk as always. He had a glass of wine and he was just like stumbling in the middle of his paintings. And then the interviewer asked him, what is your advice for young artists? And uh, he watches the, the, the glass of wine and looks it up in the air and he says, uh, stay beautiful, you know? I, I think that's, that's the thing really I want to say, is stay beautiful. Because you, you'll end, if you don't have a career plan, you will end up having a rent to pay and whatever happens, life will push you to some conclusion. But try to stay beautiful. Try to remember that kind of feeling. And... Um, this might sound abstract, but I think it's not. Also because I think it's a generation... I'll tell you just to prove you that it's not abstract. I worked for the television for 30 years. Yeah. I resigned five years ago. I was almost on a retirement plan. I burned my retirement. Uh, I had a wonderful place where everyone respected me. I could have done everything. They never would have fired me. But I stopped because I thought I was in the wrong side of the story. I love public service. I really do love it. And I try my best to, to make it evolve even from the outside. I really love it. I, I deeply love it. So I don't want to be, it's not the criticism I'm making. It's not spite at all. I, I love it so, so much. But I think they are going on the wrong side of the story. And to, to really make my point is that when I was young, Everyone wanted to enter the public service, radio, television. That meant having access to means of creation, to uh, knowledge, to travel, to audience. Mm. Nowadays, the brilliant people of the new generation, they don't want to get in because they feel th things have changed. Priorities have changed. They have their own instruments. They have their own life. They have their own values. And so... They stay, in a way, they stay beautiful in a world that keeps giving them more and more obstacles, not mentioning ecology, we leave it out, that big, big, big thing, we leave it out. But all of the rest, contract, respect, everything, all of that, you know, not easy, not given. So in the end you say, okay, that's the deal. Mm. You know what, then fuck off, you know, <laughs> fuck off. I have my own instrument, I have my own life, I can, I can manage differently. So I choose to stay beautiful, you know, yeah. because you're not, you're not offering me another way to be some kind of beautiful. I stay beautiful. I really feel it because I always work for one reason or the other with young generation, with upcoming talents, all these kind of realities. I really, I really feel a switch. Uh, in, in the last years, I really feel people really say, no, no, okay, you're not offering a deal anymore. And there is like a, a cut in generations. And uh, yeah, I think, I think it's great. I think it's great. And I'm very happy to see that around me. And I, I think it's something that, that will bring changes. And I think it does. It does, because again, going back to the television, as soon as we went on the digital platform, it's been eaten by very little players, but knew how to interact with people, you know? And uh, so there, to be an, a dinosaur trying to be cool, sounds as it is, you know, like the dinosaur putting the stomping on the table. Hey, kiddos, <laughs> let's have fun together, you know? It's, uh, it's terrible. And um, yeah, so I think... Um, I, I try to, to, to stay beautiful with them. 
<laughs> Stay beautiful. I love that message. Mm. I think that's a beautiful way to wrap up this interview. Stefano Knuckel, thank you so, <laughs> thank much, you so much for talking to me today. There's only one thing left to do. Yeah. Let's roll your closing credits. Oh, right. What movie have you watched most in your life and why? Oh, that's easy. It's Eight and a Half by Fellini because it's a maze. Uh, every time I go back into this movie, I feel like I something wasn't there before. Now it's there, uh, or something uh, got added. It's a mystery. It's a, it's a mystery infold, unfolding all the time. Yeah. If you could have the Piazza Grande to yourself and your friends, what movie would you most like to watch on the big screen? Oh, I remember seeing Cremaster, the crazy movie by Matthew Barney on the Piazza Grande. They put it once. It, it's six hours long. It started at the beginning and then it finished at 6 a.m. And it's very provocative and very crazy. So I would redo it because the feeling of that night was so great and I would definitely would share it with people. Wow. You're directing a movie about mm. your own life. Mm -hmm. What would the <laughs> opening and closing scenes look like? Well, unfortunately, they, they, these, these, are, these are done. So. Yeah, I was, as I was saying it out loud, I was like, tick. <laughs> if you could create a new category of award at the Locarno Film Festival, what would it be and who would you give it to? I would say probably I would give it to someone who didn't achieve what he wanted to achieve, you know, like the award for, for really trying and not achieving because <laughs> it's what happens the most right. and, uh, and it's incredible what you learn out of that. So he would get an award, but in his award speech, he would say what he had learned of this failure. Hmm. What are your hopes for the future of film festivals? I, I hope, since you mentioned film festival, is that uh, they see cinema as a culture and not cinema as a cinema industry, uh, so that cinema can talk with different realities and play and reinvent itself as something that has to speak to everyone. This is what I'm trying to do in, in the Festival Locarno, not to be holed up uh, in just in the cinema industry and self-referencing from one festival to the other. Mm. What's the biggest challenge today for cinema and culture? I think this is, this, uh, well, on, on one side, the entertainment, super formatted uh, challenge, like everyone just, and, and, and some young people finding it cool. So it's, a, it's not a culture of creation, it's just a, a culture of upgrade, you know? You're happy when you have the latest upgrade, like, oh, I have this VFX, but you have like the 5.1, you have only 4.9. Mm. And uh, so this is one challenge. And the other challenge is really, yeah, to think that somehow culture has something to say. That culture is a is a experience with life, and uh, that's a big challenge. Mm. What can art and cinema do to improve people's lives? It surely did improve mine, so that means it, it could do it. I know other people. Uh, again, going back to East Timor, I saw people really changing their relation to life because they had access to culture. I think culture is really powerful, but if we mistake it with I love entertainment, I do enjoy entertainment, but if we mistake culture with entertainment, if we mistake culture with uh, platitudes, with only people just saying things that you want to hear, mm. then we are lost. But I think, I, I do think culture can change life, of course. Is today's art shaping society as it should? Uh, definitely not. Definitely not. Yeah, I, I met Sokurov the other day and I asked him, I said, I want just a personal question that in the end of your life, because um, I think he has such a great life, he cannot share with anyone. It must be frustrating. Such a genius and uh, such, well, such a story behind him. And I said, but, but do you think in the end for you, culture 
is more of a war thing or a peace thing, you know, because we should promote culture for peace. And I said, but in the end, culture is used really to make war and it's much more effective when you use it to make war. Last question, as the Locarno Film Festival is all about freedom, mm -hmm. do you feel free? Totally, totally. I, 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 I think you're free because you interact with everything and everyone, you know. I really love this idea of saying, since it exists in, on Earth, it's natural, you know. Whatever you see around you, even the, the weirdest thing, the one that shocks you the most, it's natural. It's so freedom in that sense is because you're part of everything, so you're free. But of course, we all have limitations, but that's, that's perfect, that's good. But freedom to that extent where you can act as someone who is free and stand up and sometimes says no, of course, this is like everyone can do that. And once you do it like twice, three times, you're free. I mean, you can't be free all the time, but you can free sometime. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank That's you. a wrap. Thank you for listening to Future Spectives, the Locarno Film Festival podcast presented by UBS. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support Future Spectives with your review and subscribe on all the major podcast platforms. This series is created and produced by Brand Audio Media.